Our text this morning is from John 18, verse 36, is the particular text from John 18. We're going to read, I'm going to read, verses 28 to 38, 28 to 38 of John 18, with the text being verse 36. This is God's holy word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Fort Sumter had been fired upon and taken. The momentous U.S. Civil War had commenced in April 1861. Less than a month later, the General Assembly of the PCUSA, the still united old school Presbyterian church, met in Philadelphia under great public pressure to issue a pro-union statement. Some there, including Charles Hodge of Princeton, was concerned that the body would be overrun with political matters and appreciated that the moderator of the previous assembly, John William Yeomans, opened this assembly, it's still the custom of the moderator of the previous assembly, to preach the opening sermon. So the previous moderator was preaching the opening sermon, and he he preached in the time of a divided nation this text, John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, I just say this as a footnote. The concerns of those there that the assembly would be overrun with political matters was a valid one. And, in fact, it was. But that's a different matter for another time. Here in John 18, only John records these details of Pilate's interview with our Lord, and you might feel that there's something missing. Well, of course, we have four, right? Gospels, three other that are called synoptics. 
We're not going to read those. I just assume that you will or that you know them. But you need to read all of them to get the full story of this because nowhere is the story fuller than in the passion narrative. And if you look at Luke, for example, 23 particularly, it makes clear there that Pilate inquired of Jesus as to his kingship. You might wonder, why all of a sudden does Pilate say, are you a king? Where does that come from? Well, go to look at Luke. Luke makes it clear that when Jesus came before the Sanhedrin, three charges, false ones to be sure, were brought against Jesus. First, perverting the Jewish nation. They charged him with, secondly, forbidding the Jews to pay taxes levied by Caesar. And thirdly, proclaiming himself as king of the Jewish nation. And the last charge was obviously brought to imply sedition, to make it sound as if Jesus saw himself as a rival to Caesar, if not Pilate, who was a governor under Caesar as well. And so this is the one that Pilate takes up. Pilate knows there are these charges out there against Jesus in the air. It's not right in our text. But he picks it up in our text and he says, well, are you a king? Meaning that's what they've said. You've said. And thus the dialogue ensues. Pilate takes this matter up. You may recall he's going to get counsel from Herod. And he's going to get involuntary counsel from his wife who had a dream and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And ultimately, Pilate will dismiss this charge, not finding Jesus to be making political and military claims. Again, the Sanhedrin were trying to make it sound as if Jesus was about to, to, to lead a revolution. Right? And Pilate, at the end of verse 38... That's what he means when he says at the end of verse 38 that you just heard, I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, I don't find him to be doing what you're charging him with. But it's quite clear, and let us be clear, that Jesus Christ does indeed reign as king. And here's our theme. Jesus is the heavenly king over a heavenly kingdom. And as we see that, let's focus particularly on these two things. First of all, the nature of Christ's kingship. The nature of this kingship that Christ bears. And secondly, the nature of Christ's kingdom. The nature of Christ's kingship and the nature of his kingdom. Well, the nature of Christ's kingship, we may say, first of all, though observed in his humiliation is also obscured in that state of humiliation. It's both obscured and observed. Let's think a little bit about how it's observed. Jesus entered into that state of humiliation, as we call it, as our catechism and confession refers to it as. He entered that state at his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In other words, when Jesus added humanity to his deity as began with his conception and then birth that followed that is the beginning of what's called his humiliation it was humbling then simply for him to be incarnate to add humanity to deity further it was humbling to be born not 
in glory and splendor as befitted him, right? He who was in a place where his name was only praised with garments of aloes and cassia came down to this poor sin-benighted cursed earth where his name was cursed. His beard was plucked out. He was spat upon. So he was not born or treated as befitted him, but in a low condition, we say, not only under the law, but mired in want. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Even in this low estate, as some have called it, of a perpetual Gethsemane, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even in that state, though, his kingship was seen. He performed miracles that bespoke his deity and his kingly nature. He ruled the wind and the waves. He healed. He even raised the dead. He commanded and cast out demons. Athanasius, in his great work on the Incarnation, says, At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life. And as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And Leo puts it this way. Leo the Great, who was a predecessor of Gregory the Great, whose hymn we just sang earlier. Leo says, the proper character of both natures was maintained and came together in a single person. Thus was true God born in the undiminished and perfect nature of a true man, complete in what is his and complete in what is ours. So this shows us that, yes, though he's in a state of humiliation, he reigned even in that estate. It could be seen. But we say it was also obscured. His kingship over all was obscured, particularly in his passion, as he's heading to the cross, especially in the passage before us. He's before Pontius Pilate, who is indeed a civil ruler and who has a right to make proper sorts of judgments, who has the right to make judgments about the death penalty. But you understand here, he's submitting himself to this. Remember at his arrest, it tells us he could have called 12 legions of angels. They all fell back when he said and identified himself. They said, are you the one? And he said, I am. I am he, it's usually put. But he just said, I am. What God said at the bush. And they fell backwards. He could have said, bye. He could have walked away at any point. But he's submitting himself here. He's submitting himself. And Pilate gets some idea, I think, all along here that he's really not as in charge of this interview as as he would like to be, right? He turns the tables almost right away in verse 34. He's questioning Pilate. Well, how do you know this? Where did you hear this? And you can imagine Pilate is like, wait a minute, I'm asking the questions here, right? I'm conducting this interview. But in verse 37, notice that. He even says to Pilate, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. There's 
There's an implicit invitation, I think, at that point, if you would, to, to Pilate. Like, are you one of those? Don Carson says, his sheep hear his voice. And Pilate shows us he's not one of the sheep. You see, though Jesus is before Pilate to be judged, as it were, we never really put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis said. That's what we want to do. We want to be on the bench that the judge sits on and put God in the place of the prisoner before us so that we can sit in judgment on God. But you must be clear, friends, we're never actually ever sitting in judgment on God. We are before Him to be judged of Him. He is never before us to be judged of us. But Jesus is putting Himself in this position. He's placing Himself freely here. And to Pilate's amazement, this is seen more clearly in the synoptics, he doesn't make a defense of himself. I think when Pilate says what he does in verse 37, so you are a king, he probably expected, most commentators agree, some sort of denial or evasion. But what really amazes Pilate, again you have to look at the synoptics for this, is that Jesus doesn't defend himself here. He doesn't defend himself against manifestly false charges Think of that second charge. They charged him with saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, you all know, everybody in this room knows. He said, pay to Caesar. Get to Caesar what Caesar's owed. To God what God is owed. And you say, well, is it wrong to defend yourself? Paul appealed to Caesar. I didn't think it was wrong to defend yourself. I want you to be really clear why when Jesus was before Pilate, he didn't defend himself. He was as a, a lamb before her slaughterers, her shearers are silent. He opened not his mouth. Why? Because it would be proud? No. He did not defend himself because he was not standing there simply representing himself. He was standing there representing you and me. And as he stood before Pilate, he was constituted judicially guilty as he was on the cross. It's beginning here. He's constituted judicially guilty on our behalf. In other words, he's the sin bearer. As the hymn writer said, in my place condemned he stood. He made no defense because he wasn't answering simply for himself. He made no defense because he was representing you and me and we have no defense. We're guilty, guilty, guilty. And he took his place there not seeking to evade this death penalty which was for you and me. Oh, he had no sin. He was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he took upon himself the guilt of your and my sin. Well, what is the nature? This is a different king you can see. This is a very different king from any earthly king. What's the nature of his kingship? Verse 36, it's a spiritual kingship. That's why, and I wonder what you think here. That's why Jesus' answer baffles Pilate. And I've, some of the commentators and, and people sometime when I talk to you, I say, do you think Jesus was playing a game here with Pilate? Was this, was this kind of a cat and mouse game, you know? Pilate is, are you a king? And why isn't Jesus just real straightforward in saying, I'm a king? I want you to think about that. Why do you think? Why do you think? He does say he's a king, but... Let's think together. 
Jesus answers baffled, his answer baffles Pilate, not because Jesus is seeking to confuse him, but because, please hear this, Pilate has no categories whereby to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that he's a king who has come into the world for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. And Pilate sees himself as trying to get at the truth. Verse 35, he says, what have you done? Verse 37, so you are a king. Finally concluding that whatever kind of king he is, he's without guilt. Verse 38. And all along here, Pilate's clearly dubious. Again, the synoptics look at them. He's dubious about the Jewish leader's claims. Even recognizing, if you go to Mark 15.10, it's real plain. It says, Pilate, this godless man, this godless Roman governor, recognized that the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over for what reason? It says it in Mark 15.10. You don't have to guess. For envy. For envy. Do you know why, boys and girls? Because when Jesus came, all the people who told everybody how godly and wonderful they were didn't look so much that way. In his bright light, their light wasn't very bright. I remember many years I was involved at a one of these camps out east, French Creek. Some of you may have heard of it. I was on the board. I taught there all the time. And they didn't have electricity up in the units. And so kids would bring their flashlights. And there would always be, I remember Jake, who brought this huge honking spotlight. You know, and every, oh, have you seen Jake's light? And we were down at the mess hall noonday. And somebody said, Jake, turn that light on. And he did. And another person laughed. We were out in the bright noonday sun, which you occasionally get here in Michigan, I understand. He was out in the bright noonday sun. And the person said, Where's, that doesn't look very bright. Well, of course it doesn't. Nothing's going to look bright. No light is going to look bright in the brilliant noonday sun. That's what happened when Jesus came. He was the brilliant sun to all their little candles, and they hated him for it. But Pilate is trying to get at the truth here. He says he is, but he makes it clear that he can't handle the truth. Verse 38, Jesus blows all his categories. What do you mean? What do you mean, strange, when you say he blows his categories? Because if Jesus just says to him, I am a king, yes. Oh, Pilate, think about it. What's he going to think? Oh, you're like Caesar. You're like me. He has no other way to think about it. All he can think about is an earthly king. And Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's not that kind of king. So he's not playing games with Pilate. Rather, he's trying to explain it as clearly as can be about the nature of his kingdom. Look what it says of his kingship and his kingdom. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world. You you remember in the garden, Peter tried that a little bit, right? He took out his sword and he cut off Malchus, the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus picked it up and put it back on his head. Wow, that reverse Van Gogh that Jesus performed, he would have never forgotten that. Whatever happened to him afterwards, you can imagine, he always thought, he put my ear back on. Yeah, 
Jesus is clearly king of a different sort. He rules, as we've said, the wind and the waves, even in humiliation. Earthly kings in their greatest glory don't rule the wind and the waves. He's a king whose origin lies elsewhere. Had the kingship existed still in Israel, he would have been the king. But he's not king in an earthly fashion. And this is what, this is what Pilate really can't get. He has a kingship that impacts all of this world, but that is not of this world. It's not one of, again, verse 36, of swords loud clashing or a roll of stirring drums, as we're going to sing in a moment. It's not that kind of a kingdom. Most kingdoms are established and maintained by force. No, he's the Lord from above who doesn't rule. In contrast to many earthly authorities, he doesn't rule like parents who have the rod. He doesn't rule like civil rulers like Pilate or Caesar who have the sword and life and death authority. Yes, he's ruler of all spheres. He's ruler over all of those, but that's not so immediately in view here. He rules in the midst of his church, especially with the exercise of the keys and through the means of grace, the word sacraments and prayers. He orders and rules his church through his appointed office bearers. There's only one heavenly king. There's only one king like this, who is the ruler of all earthly kings, as we've sung, who is the ruler of Pilate here and of Caesar. But you say he doesn't appear to be. He's submitting himself. That's right. That's right, because he's dying for you and me. When he comes again, All will submit to him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he came the first time not to bring judgment, but to save us from our sins. Thanks be to God. Well, we spent a lot of time, the bulk of our time, don't worry, quite so, looking at the nature of Christ's kingship. What is the nature of his kingdom? This kingdom that has as its head a heavenly king. Well, as we say, it's a kingdom, verse 36, that's not of this world, from this world, that is up against this world, as Ketty says. Yes, it is in this world. Luke 17, 21 makes it clear that this kingdom is not observed by sight. In other words, you can't say, look, here it is. It's a spiritual kingdom that is within you. Or that is in the midst of you. Again, there are many other places that go into this. I'll let you look at them as you look at these things. Which is to say, this kingdom we're talking about, this spiritual kingdom, is not a realm so much. It's not a a realm like Michigan or Illinois. These These are realms, they're regions, they're specific territories. But it's a reign, as Clowney says. It's not a realm, but a reign. The kingdom, which has come and is to come, we prayed that a moment ago, is in the midst of you, in the person of Jesus, and in the reign of God demonstrated in the lives of his followers. His kingdom is about his reigning in your heart and life. God's people... In that sense, you might say, carry the kingdom with them wherever they go. They, you, as Augustine said, are the city of God. 
And you're the city of God as you go even out from this place. As you go into the marketplace, into the courtroom, the hospital, the classroom, the office, the factory floor. So at work, at play, as well as at worship. Particularly at worship, it's manifested. But it's manifested throughout the whole of our lives as his people. Because we're in spiritual communion with Christ and each other. Living in this world according to the strictures of our king. Yes, we have citizenship in Michigan or in Illinois or in the United States. We have other sorts of citizenship. But our first is a heavenly citizenship. That is our first allegiance. So that as we prayed for those in the Ukraine, we have more in common with those in the Ukraine or China or North Korea who are true believers in Christ than we do with our fellow Americans who don't know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. We have more in common with those who are part of the Christian church throughout the world. So... Living in this world, according to the strictures of our king, not from this world, not merely another king over another earthly kingdom, but ruling in the hearts and lives of all of those who bow to the truth. Remember, Jesus came. He particularly is the king who gives witness to the truth. Going back to the garden, Satan, who would claim these, the kingdoms of this world. You remember the temptation to Jesus? Fall down and worship me. He said, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. He has some place in the kingdoms of this world. And of course, we know that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, we say. But Jesus is the king of truth. A lot of people are confused these days. They say, well, it's always interesting to me when somebody says, Pastor, you know, I can't turn on the television in one of the networks any longer and know that I'm going to hear the truth. And I tried to deal gently and kindly and lovingly with them and thought, you really thought that at some previous point, CBS, ABC, NBC, PBS, were giving you the truth? That comes from Jesus. That comes from here. It never did come from them. Oh, it might not so obviously have been a lie. It might not so obviously have been biased. I understand all of that. You know, you're naive. No. You're naive if you think the world gives you the truth. Never has, never will. That's not Satan's business. He's in the lying business. Jesus is in the truth business. And you need to be judging everything from this word. Judging everything from this word. Dismissory Pilate. I think despairing Pilate said what is truth. With apologies to Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon says jesting Pilate said. I don't think Pilate exactly here is jesting when he says what is truth. I think he's more. It's a very postmodern sort of expression. What is truth? Sort of despairing. Like, well, there are many claims. Well, there may be many claims. This is the truth. This is the truth. Truth is that Christ provides the sure remedy for our condition. A part of which is a transformation at our spiritual core that impacts all that you think, say, and do. So this kingdom is manifested throughout our lives as we go throughout our days 
But the church has rightly been said to be the alpha form of this spiritual kingdom, contrasted as a spiritual kingdom with the biological institution of the family. The family is a biological institution. All sorts of people are in families who may not be a part of the church. Obviously, many people in families are part of the church, but many people in families are not part of the church. And the civil institution, which is the state, which is all of society bound together in a certain way. You see, the power of the church, this helps you to see some of the differences. The power of the church is a spiritual power. It's the power of the keys. And the power of the church over against what the Roman Catholic Church says. The power of the church is ministerial and declarative, not magisterial and legislative. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And the power of the state, it's a proper power, is legal and coercive. The power of the church is moral and suasive. By the way, I'm not just making these things up. This is all actually in our form of government, which I study a lot. I've written a commentary on it. So um, this is a very, we've, we've worked on this, we, the Presbyterian Church, over the course of the years. And these are the distinctions. Here you have what we could call a proper doctrine, and you may have heard it put this way, of the spirituality of the church. A proper doctrine of the spirituality of the church. And it means that the church is a spiritual entity as a part of this kingdom. It's not indifferent to its times or the needs of others, not not at all, but absorbed in them for their spiritual good. The best expression I've read anywhere of this is Warfield's magnificent sermon, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield's sermon, Imitating the Incarnation. I would urge you to use your favorite search engine. You know, I preach around a lot, and somewhere I used the G word. You should G this just as a common word. And I was told I sh- that's a bad search engine. So I'm not going to argue with you about what search engine you like. I don't care, okay? <laughs> Imitating the incarnation. Warfield. This gospel is not a mere social gospel. Rather, the spirituality of the church understands that... The church is especially that agency that is to preach the pure gospel. Listen to what J. Gresham Machen says in Christianity and Liberalism, which next year will be the 100th anniversary of this magnificent work. He dealt with this in his own day because he was very much dealing with liberalism and the social gospel in which the gospel had just been reduced to a kind of social and political and economic program. Here's what he says. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward, not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problems of sin. Such is the sermon. And he says, in reflecting on this, is there no refuge from strife? 
Is there no place of refreshment where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place then that is the house of God, in that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. This is what the world needs. The world needs for the church to be the church. The spirituality of the church rightly understood allows the church both to distinguish itself from the world and to give itself to the world. This is our calling. We're to distinct, if we don't distinguish ourselves from the world, we do the world no good. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the church does the world the least good when she seeks to be most like it. We must understand who we are. And that's what we have to offer the world. Israel was never so pathetic, was she, of old, when it wanted to ape the nations about it? Why would you want to ape? They were, oh, look what they have. Oh, Samuel, look what they have in Babylon. So what? We're God's people. We've got what God has given us. We don't need what Babylon has. We don't want what Babylon has. Israel sought to ape the nation. She had everything from God. It's not a new problem. We have that to offer the world that only we can. The truth about God, man, and the only remedy to man's sin and his heading to hell. The God-man. The one who lived and died for us is the heavenly king of a heavenly kingdom. That's what we have to offer to a needy dying world. Not a mere political, economic, or social program. That's beneath what we're called to do. And besides the which. Now this is the word where some of you may get upset. Well, that's just too bad. The Bible does not give us a detailed blueprint for how every aspect of society should be at any rate. That's not its purpose. I thought the Bible spoke to everything. It does. It's got principles for everything. It's got explicit doctrine and it's got principles for all of life. But even in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, they had a detailed blueprint for all of life. Really? Water rights were extraordinarily important in the ancient Near East. Show me one word about water rights in the Old Testament. What's your point, Strange? My point is, is this book is meant to address our spiritual need. It addresses many things besides that narrowly put. But its purpose is that. It's not giving us a detailed political platform. And you know what? Christian people might differ. I had somebody argue with me once about, they were arguing about term limits. And you said, well, what do you think about them? Well, does it really matter? I mean, they were arguing and they started arguing and I was fine arguing with them. I don't support them. I was fine arguing with them. 
until they said, well, this is what the Bible teaches. And I said, excuse me, the Bible does not teach this. Don't, don't do that. Don't have some, you know, this is what the Bible says the tax code should be. Really? Hmm. Don't misuse it that way. Don't make it your wax nose to mean what you want to mean. And then here's your platform. May even have people around who are ministers in this church who might do that sort of thing. This is what we have to offer a needy, dying world. Not a mere political, economic, or social program, but a whole new life. In him who conquered death, hell, the grave, whoever lives to intercede for us, who reigns and rules in hearts and lives, and who will come again to take us to live forever in a kingdom that has no end. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And pray you would take it home to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.